This is Commissioner Mohammed calling to order the Port of Seattle's Audit Committee special meeting. Today is Thursday, September 7th, 2023, and the time is 9.10 a.m. We are meeting today at the Port of Seattle's headquarters commission chambers and virtually via the team's platform. Presented with me today is Commissioner Sam Cho and public member Sarah Holmstrom. To make this meeting more accessible to the public, the meeting is being live streamed and digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website. A call-in telephone number is also provided for anyone who would like to listen into the meeting. Our first item of business is approval of our last meeting minutes from June 30th, 2023. As a reminder to the viewing audience, the public member of the audit committee is not a voting member for the purposes of casting votes on motions made per the committee's rules. Are there any corrections to the minutes? Hearing none, are there any objections to approving approval of the minutes as presented? Hearing none, um, the minutes are approved. Our next order of business is the Office of the Washington State Auditors 2022 Accountability Audit Opening Presentation. Mr. Fernandez, please introduce our speakers today. Thanks, Commissioner. Um, today we have Joe Simmons and Maddie Frost Schaefer from the State Auditor's Office who will be presenting their opening presentation. So, Joe? Thank you for your time today to hear our presentation regarding our upcoming accountability audit. My name is Joe Simmons. I'm the audit manager for the State Auditor's Office here in Seattle. I'm here with Maddie Frost Schaefer, who is Assistant Audit Manager and will be the supervisor on the audit. And Angela Funamori isn't able to be here today, she will again be the audit lead on the audit. And on the next slide, just an overview of our office. We conduct over 2,400 audits during the past year. That's roughly 1,000 accountability audits, 1,000 financial statement audits, and around 400 federal single audits. We report to independently elected state auditor Pat McCarthy and have an office of over 400 auditors and we have additional audits including performance audits, cybersecurity audits that are listed there on that page. And as you know, for our audit this year, we'll be again conducting an accountability audit. And on the next slide, it talks about what in general accountability audit covers that we audit to determine if management is adequately safeguarding public resources, that's assets, revenues, expenditures, and protection from misuse and misappropriation. And then we also evaluate whether there's reasonable assurance that there's protections and adherence to applicable state laws and the port's own policies and procedures. And we use a risk-based approach where we do planning at the beginning of the audit to evaluate which areas are at highest risk for the current audit. We're not yet at that stage. We're here to talk about our audit in general, but we have not yet started the planning. Once we've started the planning, 
stage, we'll determine those areas and then we'll communicate those to you once those are determined. And on the next slide, as you know, of course, you are audited for your financial statement audit and your federal single audit by the Moss Adams CPA firm. And as always, we review their work and we do that early in our audit process so we can review what they looked at and incorporate that into our planning for our accountability audit. We try to avoid any overlap of things that they've looked at. And also we review it to determine that we can rely on that work and then we post their report on our site once we've completed that review. And on the next slide, we talk about what we do from the beginning of the audit through the end. Uh, we've already started working with the port as far as working out how we can obtain access to documents and setting up secure ways to do that. We're gonna have a initial kickoff meeting this afternoon to talk with the audit liaison about process and procedures for obtaining information during the audit. Of course, this entrance conference to talk about our audit. And then throughout the audit, we have weekly status meetings with the audit liaison, and that also includes Glenn from Internal Audit. So we meet regularly to keep them updated on the progress of audit. And if we do identify any issues, we are do our best to <laughs> communicate that as soon as they come up. So we definitely look to make sure that there is no surprises and communicate throughout that audit. And then at the end of the audit, we will present our results. And on the next slide, that talks a little bit about what those look like. We will have our accountability audit report as always. And then these are the levels that we have as far as what we report on any kind of recommendations. So the highest level is findings and those that are material or significant deficiencies related to internal controls or significant material non-compliance. And those findings appear in our report, but there's also an opportunity for the port to respond to those findings as far as what actions they're taking. At a lower level is management letters. That's not as significant as a finding, but still something that we think warrants the attention of the governing body. So that's in the form of a letter that we provide that's not included in the report, but it is referenced in the report that a management letter was issued. And then our most common level of recommendation is exit items, and those aren't referenced in the report, but they are recommendations based on things we identify in the course of our audit, and they're more minor type issues, but still we really have appreciated how the port has really addressed any exit right recommendations that we have made, and definitely look at that as something that hopefully is helpful to the port as far as trying to identify issues before they become larger. And on the next slide, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Maddie. Thanks, Joe. So on this slide, we just have a few general reminders as we begin our audit. The first is we are committed to safeguarding any confidential or sensitive information. Um, if any of the information we request during the audit uh, is confidential or sensitive, please let us know so we can ensure we're safeguarding it throughout the audit process. We have included the estimated audit costs in the entrance document, which was shared with you. Uh, we also want you to be aware that we have an audit dispute process. If at any point during the audit you have any concerns, we do have an established process for you to voice those concerns. Uh, we ask that you please start with Joe, but we have included uh, additional contacts in your entrance audit packet. 
Lastly, we just like to remind uh, governments that there is a state law that requires you to report any known or suspected losses to our office, and you can do that through our website. And on the next slide, we have some additional reminders about reporting cybersecurity issues uh, to our office. You may also be required to report cybersecurity issues to the Attorney General's office if an incident affects more than 500 Washington residents. And once again, um, you may also need to report any cybersecurity issues to our office if they involve financial records or financial systems. And once again, you can do that through our website. And on the next slide, a question we often get asked is who exactly audits us? And we're pleased to report that we are audited every three years by the National State Auditors Association. Our most recent peer, peer review results are available on our website at the link we have provided. And we're pleased to report our uh, latest results uh, received a rating of pass, which doesn't sound very great, but it is the highest level of assurance that you can receive. So we're very happy with that. And on the next slide, Um, so beyond our, our normal audit, we do want to make sure you're aware of some other resources that our office provides. Uh, that, that includes our local government support team, who provides uh, support through the BARS and annual online filing process. They also perform accounting and reporting trainings throughout the year. Some of them are available virtually. And run our help desk through our client portal, where they can answer any auditing or accounting questions throughout the year. The next is the Center for Government Resources which provides free resources and services to help governments work better, solve problems, and improve operations. And once again, these teams are available at no additional cost. On the next slide, um, we talk a little bit more about the center and some of the great resources they're providing. Uh, the first is the new cybersecurity checkups, which are a fast, free, and independent assessment of a government's vulnerability to common threats. They'll also provide action steps uh, for you at the end of the review. They're also doing a lot with lean services and can help governments optimize efficiency, quality, and customer service. They've helped several governments with things like permitting processes. The center is also pro providing uh, Clifton Strength workshops to help strengthen teams and promote employee satisfaction. And lastly, they also have the free fit tool, which you can use to manage uh, and monitor the port's financial health. And then on the next slide, a resource we're sharing. Um, a resource we're sharing with all governments is a guide that was recently created by our special investigations team. Uh, this guide was uh, designed specifically for elected officials to help you, um, you know, kind of prevent fraud and detect fraud and know how to respond if you become aware of fraud. So it's a really great resource that we've recently uh, put uh, put put on our website. And on the next slide. Um, once again, we wanted to include a link to that cyber, uh, cyber checkup resource. Um, our office is continuing to see more and more governments become victim to cyber fraud. So we are pleased to offer that free cyber checkup along with several other handouts and resources for governments to respond to the cyber risks uh, we are seeing. Another uh, resource our, the center has recently published is a guide to fuel, um, which includes purchasing fuel, protecting fuel stations, and monitoring fuel consumption. And on the next slide, um, 
Um, we would just like to, at this point, thank you for your time and open it up to see if you have any questions or comments for us. Thank you to the Office of the State's Auditor's Office for the presentation and for the work that you all do. Um, are there any questions from the committee members at this time? I have a quick question. So um, just going back to the cyber checkup mm -hmm. and uh, resource guides that you have made available, does this information translate well for us to share with organizations that we partner with? We've seen situations where small grassroots organizations are impacted by some sort of cyber attack or something similar and um, their information gets compromised, which ultimately impacts us. Mm -hmm. And so does, how does that work with us? That is a great question. Um, so I know the, the cyber checkups were only offering to governments, mm -hmm. but as far as the guides and resources, they were designed with governments in mind, um, but they are based on industry best practices. And so I believe that there are, um, there is information in there that can also be helpful to other government or uh, uh, other organizations and uh, companies and nonprofits as well for them to keep in mind about their own uh, vulnerabilities. Great, thank you. That's that's helpful to know that that information is relevant. Um, I don't have any other questions. If there's no additional questions for the State Auditor's Office or Mr. Fernandez on this item, we'll move on to the next topic. Thank you guys again. Thank you for your time. Thank you. So I'll move us along. Um, item number four on the agenda is approval of the 2024 proposed budget. Glenn, please proceed with the updates. Thank you, Commissioner. So uh, next slide, please, Michelle. The, a little overview of our department, commissioners and Ms. Holmstrom, you know, we provide assurance that the port's controls are effective and efficient, that they're working. Essentially, um, you know, if before a fire starts, so think of it, if, if there's smoke, we like to come in and identify the smoke and say, hey, your house has got smoke, uh, come, rather than coming in after the fact and say, say your house burnt down. So controls prevent, um, something in your house from burning down in essence. Uh, so that's one of the key things we do. Um, we also do a lot of work on, um, you know, we're doing a lot of GCCM pro construction projects now. That's uh, general contractor, construction manager type uh, construction methodologies. And because we're doing that, that seems to work well for the port, but the RCW also requires independent audits of those. So we facilitate and partner on those independent audits. And, and it's, it's a lot of work. So you'll see, um, I'll, I'll show you a chart later of all the GCCM projects that the port's doing in the next few years and, and the work that needs to be done in those. Uh, we also use an outside firm for that that um, we partner with and we'll talk about that also. You know, where possible, we provide advisory services to the port. We see a lot, we have a lot of experience with our team and um, we, um, you know, <laughs> thank you. Oh, no worries. I'm glad you're here. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things we do is if there's a process broken or someone needs help on something, they'll come to us and they'll ask us, can you uh, help us with this? And from time to time, you know, if we're not, if we'll recommend and we'll help them improve their process. And then one of the critical things to being a good internal audit function 
is you don't report internally to someone in-house. You report functionally to an audit committee. So your work isn't, you know, you don't want um, <coughs> someone in management rewriting your audit reports and, uh, you know, just letting the good stuff come out to the public. I mean, the, the you know, things that are scrubbed. So by reporting to the audit committee functionally and administratively to Steve, we maintain our independence and objectivity. Next slide, please, Michelle. So 2024, what are we doing? What are our major initiatives? First off, you know, we want to be able to continue to do our GCCM audits because I think the port's scaling up for this. And as uh, I think Steve Metrick, the executive director, has kind of analogized it to we've climbed smaller mountains, we're about to climb Everest. You know, so as we go to um, take on all these capital projects, we want to make sure that from an audit perspective, we're ready also for that spend and, and that we can add value as we go. Our, um, another thing that we've got as a major enhancement is our concession audit program. So we do, we have maybe a, over 100 concessionaires at the airport and on the maritime side. A lot of concessionaires, a lot of their revenue, which is over $100 million, is self-reported to the port. Um, so we cycle through and we audit those, but we would like to enhance our process and increase our speed and volume and use perhaps automated tools, figure out how we can have more touch points, and at the same time minimize impact to the concessionaires. And, and it's a win-win because a lot of these are smaller businesses also, so we want to help them uh, early on in the process and, um, you know, be as as little impactful as possible, but yet uh, get good coverage there. And we have a, an opportunity there. And then finally, uh, there's the equity policy directive that, um, was, that came out this year. And one of the things, uh, Bukhtar Gesar, the, our senior director of OEDI, or Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusions, asked, is a partnership where we can build a tool to assure compliance with that. You know, be it if we have anti-human traffic policies, if we have a, a potential third-party code of conduct, how do we go out and enforce that all our touch points are actually complying with it? You know, we just don't want a document that's out there that nobody follows. So uh, we want to design that into our work. So as we go out and touch all of these various entities, we're also educating them and assuring compliance in some way. But that needs to be designed and built. So, um, you know, that's a major initiative of ours going forward next year. Next slide, please, Michelle. So how do we do this? This is the team, an internal audit at the port that does all of that work. We've got, uh, you know, three groups, Dan on the operation performance audit side and the concession audit side. So, uh, you know, although we leverage off other resources, Dan leads the performance audits and, and the concession audits. Um, Spencer does all the capital work, Spencer Bright in the middle there, and, you know, he's got that load with the GCCM audits. We do have outside services that we use, but he's got to manage those as well and keep, um, make sure that the audits are happening as the legislature intended and, um, you know, keeps the projects moving and make sure that we're good stewards of taxpayer funds. And then you heard a lot from uh, the SAO and cybersecurity. Uh, Ritika Marwaha, our uh, 
IT audit manager does uh, audits of IT audits of uh, you know corporate side and um, the aviation side. You know when you look at the airport and you've got all those moving parts, you've got baggage systems, runway lights that are all managed by computers and uh, you know, those uh, operations technology systems are audited just as well as the financial systems and all of the other systems we have. So the three groups there. Next slide, please, Michelle. Our budget is relatively straightforward. You know, the largest thing is our salaries and wages, which just goes up with inflation. Um, our headcount is constant. You know, we also invest in education because uh, most of our staff, actually I think all of our staff had either CPA licenses or um, some construction certification or technology certification like a certified information systems auditor and to maintain those licenses and the training that's required to keep them fresh. That goes into the travel and other employee expenses. That's pretty much all the training. Outside services you know, the big numbers that you see in the past are from um, the GCCM audits. They'd come in and then they'd be capitalized and line nine would show them being capitalized and coming out of expense. Now we're capitalizing them directly to the project. And I'll show you a slide that talks a little bit about that in more detail. The, the $40,000 that you see in there, we have an individual that's going on maternity leave and she, well, she's already on maternity leave and she's going to be out for a you know, the first half of next year, so it's for some temporary help. There's, you know, the other things are just sundries and computer equipment, miscellaneous items. N next slide, please, Michelle. So this is the new budget request that's out of the ordinary. It's just for um, some temporary help to uh, backfill staff that's on maternity leave next, for the first part of next year. And next slide. So this slide, commissioners, you know, uh, the audit costs here do get approved by the full commission when the project is approved. So it's in the project presentation that's made to you. But for transparency, since we're audited, breaking this out, um, the estimated construction costs are early estimates of just the construction-related costs. So there's design costs and uh, other soft costs that will increase the cost of these projects. And these are early estimates. A lot of these project costs will go up. Um, but we base our spend on those and, and um, you know, we accordingly bid out the audit services. They are bid out publicly. Um, some of them are IDIQs where it's a, a particular contract that covers two or three um, projects. And then sometimes you have something big like the South Concourse, which is going to be a billion dollar plus project and you know we'll probably have, a have to have a dedicated auditor on that working with us continuously. It's a 10 year project so you know when you go all the way into 2030 something um, you're going to have um, you know a, a lot of spend and a lot of change that occurs over that in the life of that project. But for transparency these are estimates of what the audit costs will be and I just wanted to yeah, it's, it's really the expense budget that gets approved here. The construction budget here is, like I said, approved by the full commission. A separate presentation. And that concludes, actually, commissioners, my uh, 
budget presentation. It's relatively simple, straightforward. I'll answer any questions now. Thank you, Mr. Fernandez. Um, are there any questions from our committee members at this time? Okay, is there a motion and a second for approval of the 2024 proposed budget? So moved. Second? <laughs> um, the motion has been made and seconded. Is there any objections to approval of the 2024 proposed budget? Hearing none, the motion is approved. Thank you, Commissioner. Absolutely. Next slide, please, Michelle. So, Commissioners, I have a little bit of a good news story here. If you look at the bars in this follow-up chart, you'll see that uh, the bars in the far right, the more than two years has come down significantly. So, one second. Do we, um, it's, uh, you're on item number five, uh, right? I'm sorry. I, yeah, I, I can introduce the item. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm <laughs> you're <sorry>. good. <laughs> so, uh, but you're, you're ahead. This is great. Uh, item number five on the agenda is a review of the open issues status report. Glenn, please proceed with the presentation. <laughs> Again, apologies, Commissioner. I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> but, but like I said, it's a good news story. And uh, one of the things we did over the last um, you know, quarter or plus, so actually over the last year, we've been working diligently with management, especially on the information technology side, to identify things that are fixed or things that are not going to be done and mitigated some other way you know, if, if a system is totally going to be replaced uh, because everything changes very quickly. And in some cases, um, just other mitigation was put in place or has management accepted the risk? There, you know, there are some cases where we've decided we're going to do something else. But uh, post-COVID, a, lo a lot of work's been done and a lot of items have been closed out. So we flushed that out. And to Ms. Holmstrom's earlier request, in the appendix, we have uh, all the details on all of these issues. So the issue, the status, and a little bit more detail on them so you do, do know what's in these bars and what makes up the bars. Um, we, we do have an open issue in architectural and engineering services that we'll talk a little bit about later. There's a comment in there that I have that says this appears to be in the Procurement Council agenda in September. That is not on the agenda, so that comment needs to be struck. But everything else, it's still an open issue. Um, questions on follow-up? Yeah. Thank and you for the presentation. My mic's not on. I think everyone in here heard me. <laughs> I never question good news. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I must say that the graph has changed significantly. I pointed to Sarah and said, you've made that point several times. <laughs> Why are there so many open issues? And so it's great to see this updated uh, graph. Thank you. Okay, so hearing no further questions, we can move on to item number six on the agenda is which is an update on the 2023 audit plan glenn please proceed with the presentation on this item thank you commissioner so our a, a quick status update on our plan and where we stand um, a lot of this is on track we have um, a couple a few changes 
We pushed the equity policy directive audit that was scheduled for this year into 2024, primarily at a request of the director of OEDI because the, the directive was um, signed and initiated just in 2024 and she hasn't had really time to, um, you know, she, she needs a little more time before we can come back and look at it and make sure that um, processes have been set up. So it made more sense to move that out. So we did move that out. We did pull in a contingency audit that the audit committee had approved earlier on the, on the police department. So we'll be focusing on the police department evidence room um, and um, we moved that up in lieu of the equity policy directive. Just for transparency, the state auditors at this time also doing an audit of the police department. They're looking primarily at seizures and they're looking statewide at police department seizures to make sure that, um, you know, their seizures are equitable amongst different demographics. So. They will come, I, I will ask them to come present to this commission as well. I, I mean, they will present to, they're doing it statewide, so they will present to JLARC as well, and then they'll present to this commission when they're done. But our work is distinct from theirs and focuses specifically on uh, the evidence room and our controls over that. On um, the capital front, yeah, the uh, Post-IF realignment at the bottom was um, a little behind schedule on the construction side, so we've moved our audit also and our audit work into 2024. In lieu of that, we've moved up um, Concourse A, the building expansion for uh, the Delta Lounge. So um, that's in process right now, and we'll report on that in the fourth quarter. So that was a swap out. And then... Um, on the information technology side, the network infrastructure management audit will be moved to 2024. And that, we're not pulling anything in for that. That'll just be done in 2024, and that's primarily because Bruce Clausal, who is our IT audit manager, retired earlier this year, and while we're filling his position, I, we have filled his position with Ritika Marwaha, but we haven't opened auditor position, and while we're filling that, uh, we're expecting late September to have that filled. We just won't have time to get it done for this. Um, it is posted, yes. And I believe mid-September we're scheduled to have interviews for the position candidates. So all our open positions are posted. Um, and, uh, you know, it's people grow, people develop, uh, people retire, people move on. So <laughs> you've got a constant, constant. And it's... <laughs> yeah. there, there will come a time. <laughs> you, you can grow, but you can't retire and move on. <laughs> Next slide, please, Michelle. So this shows, um, it's a Gantt chart that shows you where we stand with our audit plan. The ones in red, as I mentioned, are the ones that are getting pushed into 2024. And up above, we've got a few more that we've pulled into 2023 that we'll be doing. So with that, I'll, Commissioner, I'll take any questions on our audit plan before we jump into our Good, yeah, is there any questions from our committee members at this time? No questions, I can move us on to the, the next item on the agenda. We're now at the performance audit section of the agenda. Item number seven is a report on the C concourse expansion project 
Glenn, you have the floor. Please introduce our speakers. Thank you, Commissioner Mohammed. Um, so I'm going to ask Spencer Bright um, to come up to the podium. He's our capital audit manager. And I'm also on, on the line um, on Teams. We've also got Debbie Townsend from uh, R.L. Townsend and Associates and um, Patricia Farrell, Farrell Shear from R.L. Townsend and Associates. Now, R.L. Townsend and Associates is a Wimby business that um, actually they're experts in construction management. They're nationally known. And um, on these GCCM audits, you know, on three of them, they've won the contract to um, do the independent audits as required by the RCW. So although they're looking at subcontractors, um, they uh, partner with us on, uh, on these audits. And, and Spencer's got a long working relationship with them as well. So I'm going to provide a little bit of an overview, and I'll introduce our first issue. And then, you know, we'll talk through the first two issues, and then I'll ask uh, management to come up and speak and respond as well. So, uh, I'll, you know, this is pre-construction. So it's a sea concourse expansion project. And before we actually start the building of the facilities, we do, we have Turner, the, the winning bidder, come in and do a little bit of pre-construction work. So in this case, um, where you know we're, we're expanding the sea concourse by adding more than um, 20,000 square f feet of Alaska lounge access. We're taking a 81,000 uh, 81, square foot building and converting it into a 226,000 square foot facility. We're growing upwards in essence also because uh, we're running out of space at the airport. So there's, this is just the preliminary work which will turn into a $100 million-plus project, or quite a bit over that. Um, this work started in 2020, and will run out all the way to the end of this year. So it should be done at the end of this year, and then we'll go into major construction from there. Turner, as you see there, Turner Construction Company uh, was selected as the GCCM, or the General um, Constructor Construction Management Manager. And um, you know they'll likely be continuing on with this project. Next slide, please. So because this is pre-construction, um, you're you're looking at a well about a four point four million dollar price tag, which you know you look at almost two million in change orders. A large part of this is change orders um, that have come in after the fact. So uh, you're going from 4.4 .4 to about, yeah, from 2 to 4, roughly. Now, this does fall into the RCW 3910-385 category that requires um, an independent auditor to look at uh, subcontractor sub costs, primarily. And as I introduced, R.L. Townsend did a lot of the work, is doing the work on that. Now, this particular audit that we're talking about, our internal team, Spencer did the work on it and his team. However, we're leveraging off the expertise of uh, R.L. Townsend and Associates. So our work in this audit also focused on the expenses that we paid to Turner, to the GCCM, 
and we wanted to make sure that those expenses were accurate and uh, that they were in compliance with the contract. And then we took it one step further and put on a, a performance audit hat. Like this is a, you know, where, where you don't just look at compliance, but is, is what you're paying reasonable? And are the models that we're using reasonable? And, and it's called a performance audit, really. So, so we looked at the labor rate analysis, and we're going to talk about our first issue and how we built that up into the contract. So next slide, please, Michelle. So one of the things that happened is in the contract, in the back of the contract was a table. And the table had all the staff from Turner that were, that worked on the, that were, you know, wor working on the project or scheduled to work on the project and a rate for them. And, you know, and that's the agreed upon rate per hour that you'll pay for these individuals. So, uh, the model was, you know, the, the detail wasn't, I, I guess, from what I understand, it shouldn't have been in the contract, or, uh, but it was there. It, it showed you the build-up to how to get to that rate, and it was Turner's work for each of the individuals by job title and by position name. So we took a look at the detail in there, and then we also got more data from Turner. We cleaned up some of the data, and we did, in essence, a cost-plus analysis, a cost-plus approach. So there's two ways to do that. There's, there's a, I mean, there, to come up with a rate. There's a rate tool that we have in-house, a market rate analysis, which uses our in-house buildup and some model that was created in-house and with the help, I believe, of BCG. I might be wrong. But, um, you know, it's an in-house model. So we have this in-house model and then there's also a cost plus approach. And what we use is a cost plus approach where you add up all the costs that, you know, that make up the rate and then you add a markup on that that's reasonable and that's pretty standard. And I'll let, you know, in a little bit, I'll let Debbie and Patricia talk a little bit about that as well because they see it and they're experts at it. Um, CPO used their rate tool that came up with the rates. But when we recalculated each position, we found some things and some opportunities which we thought were, you know, that led us to conclude that maybe we need to take a second look at our rate tool, look at the inputs, and see if there's an opportunity to fine tune that a little bit. And I think by doing that, you know, especially as you scale up on these projects, remember, right now we're at like 4 million, this is going to go to 100 million plus, and all of these GCCMs are going to be using a similar process. In addition, we have a lot of capital coming and a lot of spend that's on the table. So how do we make sure where, you know, our models are up to date? Um, the final rate, like I mentioned on the contract, in compliance with the contract, we paid the rate, but that build up to the rate is what we're questioning. And uh, we're saying there's an opportunity to improve the inputs in the model. Next, next slide, please. So the top illustrates our internal rate tool that gives you the negotiated rate by position and individual. And then the right, you have Turner's rate buildup, which um, we essentially used and did a cost plus analysis of and built up. And, and we, you know, they both come up to a rate that's then used in the contract and then we pay that rate 
for position per hour that they work at the port. So if they work for 100 hours and they charge us $170 an hour, do the multiplication, that's what we pay them for that. Um, in the build-up, you have, you know, if you do a cost plus, you have their salaries, their wages, every, everything's covered. You have their overhead, their profit. Um, all the key elements should be either in the cost plus build-up or covered by the rate tool. There's nothing outside that. So after that, at the end of the day, those elements are what you're paying on. And there's a process and a way to do that. Um, so like I said, you know, we've got a series of items in my third bullet here that we looked at that would be questioned if we used a cost plus approach. And, and that's how Spencer came up with his difference on potential savings. And at this point, you know, rather than go through the detail here, I'm going to let the experts talk. So Patricia and uh, Debbie, you know, if you can unmute and whoever wants to take the stage and talk a little bit about these, I would appreciate it. And introduce yourself as you come online. Good morning. Uh, my name is Patricia Farrell Shear, and I'm a project executive with Arl Townsend and Associates. And uh, Debbie Townsend, our president, is also here. So she may chime in uh, from time to time. Uh, in terms of the rate buildup, uh, there were some items that I believe internal audit identified as uh, potential uh, non-compliance with the audit, perhaps non-reimbursable costs. And from an industry standard perspective, um, the benefits that we identify uh, in as non-reimbursables are typically what IA had done as well. So for instance, tuition reimbursement, we typically see within the industry that uh, you know, the contract requires uh, skilled employees and that would be something that would be covered by their general office overhead expense and or fees. And then bonuses um, obviously are discretionary and so staff retention, uh, we have found in the marketplace, there's a lot of fluctuation right now in terms of staff retention. However, uh, we would uh, look at that as something, again, that the port may not uh, have to uh, pay for in the, uh, the market rate. Uh, employee assistant programs, um, things like um, uh, outside educational programs and what have you for the assistant programs that the employees may go through. So the year-end premium pay, again, we identify that typically as uh, discretionary, uh, sometimes a bonus uh, and or um, other areas where the year-end uh, pay is uh, you know, higher than that, which would be the normal salary above and beyond. Uh, the other areas that uh, internal audit had identified, I think when we met with Spencer, was a general liability insurance rate that appeared to be excessive. And he uh, sought our counsel, and we uh, have a tendency to agree with him in that according to our databases, historical data that we have, we typically find the industry standard to range between 0.5 and 0.75. And so, of course, that raises those uh, rates that are billable uh, from the contractors. What was somewhat surprising uh, in the findings was that the virtual design, which is um, a modeling system, it's a software project that allows the contractor to 
look at the mechanical and the electrical design to determine whether there will be conflicts during the construction phase. And so that virtual design and construction software is in fact um, a reimbursable. Um, however, it would be something that we would typically see to be somewhat reasonable. You know, once they invest in this equipment, invest in the software, we don't see it as a recurring cost. Um, I believe in this particular case, the average rate should have been approximately $6.14. Uh, However, the audit identified um, areas where the rates were between five and 75, which we don't typically see uh, within the industry for that particular role. Uh, and the B&O tax, um, pretty simple. I believe that the uh, B&O tax for the state of Washington that we uh, have used from time to time, of course, is 0.471%. And uh, that was elevated as well in um, the internal audits review. I don't know, Debbie, if you have something. Um, you know, when we look at the, I mean, when we look at this, we would recommend, I mean, this is an alternative methodology of establishing reasonable uh, rates for project management that is doing pre-construction along with during the construction phase. And that would be something that we would recommend to the port in terms of establishing something uh, that you have actual cost evaluations to come up with something that's reasonable. And Debbie, I'm thinking maybe um, through the duration of the project as well, that may be something that if the cost, obviously they are going to be increases and what have you. And so if in fact they, you can establish a rate that's based on actual costs or information that's within the industry, then um, and establish those rates that would be reasonable for the duration of the project. Right. Right. And I was going to add to that. We've been doing this for, we've been in business for over, you know, 30 years and um, we only um, do construction auditing. So we have quite a bit of history um, on this type of auditing. Um, most of the time, I mean, generally our go-to position is actual cost for labor. Um, we find that anytime you use a fixed um, rate, uh, especially if it's not audited, um, you end up paying, you know, maybe 15, 20% more than what you uh, would expect to. Um, we, we believe that contractors should be paid fairly and reasonably. And I think you can do that via the audit process or, or it doesn't matter. It doesn't auditors have to do it, but whoever reviews to make sure that uh, they understand the components in these labor rates um, and, you know, pay at a reasonable amount. I, I think um, that's really the objective of what I would think the port would want to um, go towards. De Debbie, we also used uh, reduce the fee the, from, I believe it was, um, we, we set it at 5.5 to 15%. Is that what you used? Five to twelve percent. Five to twelve percent that Spencer used. I just want you to comment on that and see if that's reasonable as well. Right. When we reviewed um, what Spencer did um, originally versus um, sort of the final outcome, 
you know, I, I think he has been extremely uh, fair and um, conservative. Those fee um, that uh, Glenn just mentioned are really uh, on the very high end of what we typically see. 5.5% um, is probably, um, you know, a going rate right now, maybe even a little on the high side, but I would say, you know, considering the times, that's probably not um, unusual, um, especially in the, the Washington area. But, you know, anything higher, 15%, um, I, I have never seen any, uh, on a big project mm -hmm. like this, um, haven't seen um, fees that high. So um, I, I think that the work, um, I, I thought the work done was, um, you know, looked at fairness for the uh, contractor. And, and I will tell you, we've audited Turner year for years and have a very good understanding of their financial system, their labor and labor burden. So, um, you know, I, I think if uh, what Spencer did pretty much fell in line with what we would have, um, you know, commented on as well. Questions? Well, thank you to the staff um, for this report. And uh, Patricia and Debbie, thank you for um, offering your expertise and um, all of the information that you two have shared today. Um, are there any questions from the committee members at this time? I, I have one general question. Uh, I think one thing that stood out to me in the presentation on the sea concourse was the $1.94 million in change orders. And I have no sense of whether or not that's a lot or a little, but Oftentimes, I feel like there's always this debate, especially around project management, over like what kind of how you go about the project, whether it's GCCM or you know design build or design bid build. And I, I, I'm curious if we've ever looked at the data around how much how much we get in change orders, but you know relative to how we're managing the project. And um, obviously, every project's a little different, and the project cost is different. Um, but it would be interesting for me to see, you know, like we're, we're seeing a lot more change orders in GCCM projects or, or, or in design bid build projects, I, I, you know, and, and for us to be able to, you know, because I think it makes, it, it, it's important for us to understand and be able to forecast what our costs are, you know, and if we continue to get recurring, if, if we see a pattern of more change orders in certain types of projects than others, then maybe that's reason for us to consider you know, uh, tapering those kinds of projects. Uh, you know, I also have a theory that certain projects are probably good for design build and certain projects are good for GCCM mm -hmm. and certain projects are good for, you know, design bid build. And it might just be my ignorance on, you know, how we decide, you know, which route we go. But I, I would imagine that analysis on, on the change orders and whatnot could inform us on that too. So I, I see Janice is coming yeah, up. Yes, so Janice can answer that. I do know, I, just one comment, I know the ports had a lot of success with GCCMs and also, uh, you know, if you have a lump sum, it's not auditable. So a lot of these things that we're talking about are just lumped together, charged to the port in one and you can't pick it apart from mm -hmm. an audit perspective. So there's an advantage to GCCMs from that perspective. And I'll let Janice talk about whether 1.94 is reasonable and change orders. Yeah, well, thank you very much for your question. I would say that as we continue to use more GCCM, we have learned a lot in the last four or five GCCM. These ones you're seeing here, um, the, the next one with the main terminal low voltage was awarded in 2019, this one in 2020. 
what we are learning is the benefits of the GCCM in pre-construction. So these earlier ones, we did not have enough money in the pre-construction for some of the site investigation and the help that they do with our designers in this early part of the, of the design work. So that's why you're seeing the, the large change orders in uh, main term low voltage had an increase, C concourse, and then as we've moved along in our newer GCCM, we're having discussions to really understand from our lessons learned, what should we have as a pre-construction contract value that accounts for the scope of work that we want done? Because the reason we use GCCM and the RCW 3910 uh, is based on is that early interaction of the, of the contractor to help us vet and reduce risk and understand the situation and, and site conditions. And I would say that over the first couple of them that you are seeing now, we underestimated the benefits of the GCCM and so those initial contracts, we issued change orders to increase the value so we could get more effort out of the GCCM. And can you remind me, was IAF GCCM or was that design build? It, it was progressive design build. Yeah, so that's what I thought, okay. Thanks. Sarah? Um, okay, on, on this, this recommendation, I guess I'm still trying to piece together some of this. So, like, the general liability rate and these three items at the bottom of this page, who is that in our CPO model that these are wrong, or is this in what Turner submitted that was these numbers? No, so Turner had something attached, actually, to the back of the contract. It was a rate buildup table. And an example is in the actual audit report where they listed out all of these charges and, and literally they put the rates on there and how they came up with the final charge per position. So the table will say these are the benefits we're charging you, the, these are, this is the virtual design cost, this is our insurance, this is our tax, and that, if you foot all of those, it comes up to a rate. Mm -hmm. And that rate is what ends up being charged to the port. Now, when we ask CPO, why was this in? They said the table shouldn't have been in the contract. We agreed to this rate in the contract, so we should be paying based on the rate. And uh, they said, you know, um, our model comes up with the same rate, so our model said the rate is okay. And that's kind of where we... Okay, so that's why the recommendation is focusing on our tool and our... Yeah, our current rate tool, because we're saying, based on what Turner submitted, these are clearly wrong. Like, I mean, this is like, this is, this doesn't leave a lot of question mark. I mean, like, the B&O tax rate is very cut and dry. So I guess I don't understand how, I mean, from Turner's perspective, I guess uh, there's a <laughs> profitability aspect, obviously. But from our side, why would we... I can't imagine we had the rate wrong, so do we have somewhere else in our tool that is too high, that is accounting for how we came up with the same rate? Like if the B&O tax, like I can't imagine we have something different than the 0.471%. Clearly Turner's did, and if we're saying our rate tool came up with the same rate, then we've got problems elsewhere within our tool that we need to figure out where they are. Do we know where those are? Well, that's my recommendation. I have some theories, but I think, you know, you have to go back and look at the tool. And I think my concern with the tool is that we've got the mar three components, the market rate analysis, historical, and what, you 
know, what other information we have from that company. Nora's going to talk about this in a response. If you'd like her to respond now, yes. Uh, and you also have uh, the RL Townsend folks that can answer any questions for you. So, uh, Nora, would you like, and Kyle, would you like yeah. to respond uh, to that? Thanks, commissioners, um, public member. Um, my name is Kyle Dobert. I'm the senior manager of construction contracting, so I'm in charge of the group that managed this contract. Um, just a couple things about the rate tool. So, um, one, the, the um, table that Turner provided was informational. So it wasn't in there incorrectly, but it was for information only. We didn't use the rate buildup to negotiate the rates. So we were looking for a fair and reasonable rate based on market rates. So we have information about what a fair and reasonable rate for like a project manager one was. We didn't go down to the level of B&O taxes XYZ. So we knew that a project manager one in this area might make, let's say, $100 fully burdened. Um, Turner submitted a rate. We used that information to negotiate what we considered is a fair and reasonable rate. So um, Glenn's referring to now going back and recreating the rate as a cost plus fixed fee contract. Um, but that's not how we came up with the rate. So that's why there's maybe a discrepancy with what they're saying and what our tool might have. Our tool wouldn't use this information. So I guess can you elaborate on what the tool uses for the fair market rate? Like what are, what are the inputs for that then? Um, yeah, uh, for the market rate, we get a number of data points from different market uh, books. I don't have the manager here who has actually created the, you know, does the inputs and stuff. So basically we go and on an annual basis there are a number of reference guides that we use that we input that information. And then we break it down um, by job classification. We do a, I think it's a one through ten um, uh, grade, so to speak, so it can be a PM1 up through a PM10. And so we use the market data to create a calculation in order to come up with what the market rate is. I think it's important to also understand we don't just use one tool. We don't use one data point. So when we're looking at this, we look at um, the information that comes from our different rate books um, and create that calculation through the tool. We also look at historical information um, and we um, in, and I'm not necessarily certain in this instance, a lot of times we can look at other invoices, what other agencies, what other companies pay in order to understand sort of what are all those different data points in order to determine what is a fair and reasonable billing rate. Um, we, we specifically chose not to do a cost reimbursement. We typically, um, it's not common to do those on GCCM type contracts. Okay, so I, I guess my concern is like the specific items identified here seem pretty black and white and when we're looking at comparing to a fair market rate that we are updating annually it sounds like we are looking at those each year um, obviously the economy and you know demand and availability of resources of these type of people is going to make a big difference in that um, and then historic trends, I guess I, I, without trying to get too much into the details, I'm trying to understand how the tool, so you have these rate books that give you, hey, this is a PM1, this is their rate, we input that. How does historic play into that? And what, like, how many, does it average all those? Like how, 
and when you guys look at it, like Turner said, okay, this is 50 bucks an hour. Our tool says between 30 and 50 is reasonable. So do you guys just say, okay, we're okay with 50? Can you tell me a little bit more about that part too? It is, so we have the, um, the folks who are negotiating this look at all the different data points and it is assessing those data points using sort of their understanding of the market. We work, it's not just CPO, so we also pull in uh, Janice's team, the project management team, and so the team as a whole looks at all of the different data points. They are given, so on the historical information, we can dig down and see how many times it's been used. We can look at what the average is. And so we are looking at multiple layers of sort of the data in order to determine what we believe is an appropriate billing rate. And you know, one, one follow-up, you, you had asked a good question around, you know, if our tool is saying 30 to $50 and it's $50, do we just approve it? Generally, no. We have a negotiation strategy that sets a, a port target um, and we will push to that target. And generally, it's not on the high end of whatever our range is. For, for this contract, for example, we reduce rates totally down 7% from what was initially requested. So for example, if they had requested $100 worth of rates, we actually negotiated it and the contract ended with $93 worth of rates um, on average. So there's someone online who has a hand up. Maybe, Sarah, they'll be able to answer your questions additionally. Um, I don't see the name or Oh, you don't know who it is. Um, you're you're welcome to answer the, if you have a comment. Hello, this is this is Mandela. Can you guys hear? Yeah. I yes. Okay, uh, a couple comments uh, around the specifics. I am working. Um, my name is Mandela Thomas. I help run the um, the uh, analytics team that helps do these rates. I work for Nora. So the, the sources, where does the market data, I wanted to speak to that, and then I can also comment on some of the uh, historical questions around how, that, how the historical um, numbers are used. So American Council of, Eng of Engineering Companies, that's um, where we get some market information. We look at uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, we look at the American Society of, Engin of Civil Engineers, um, and a couple of other sources. So those are the types of market uh, information that we collect and, and synthesize. And then from the uh, historical perspective, <clears throat> we have, um, we do look at the average of what we've paid historically over, over a period of time. And if that average, if, if we have maybe two or three instances of that particular rate, then, then that has less of a, a significance. But if we have, say 150 instances of historical data, then we um, key in and pay a little bit more attention to that. So if um, the, the nice thing about the market data is it gives us a lot of information, but um, it is a, uh, the average. So you're gonna have outliers that are above and outliers that are below. And the, the, the market numbers will fit very well for a bulk of it, but there are instances where it doesn't fit. And then um, that's why if, if the, the market information isn't making sense and we say, okay, well, what's happened at the port historically because we have different requirements at the port. And so we like to understand where that has been in the past and that can help us inform how we, how we go. But we don't look at solely strictly market and only that. We don't look at solely historical. Um, but these are our reference points to help us uh, go into a negotiation uh, informed. 
Does that answer the questions around the historical and the, uh, the different sources? Yeah, that's super helpful. Thanks for giving some detail. I guess if I take a step back here, what I would ultimately say is based on what internal audit found of saving approximately 160 to 257,000, when you look at fully burdened, like doing like a cost plus methodology, I understand you guys said like that that's not typically how we do these GCCMs and I get that, but I think at a minimum, this begs the question of, we probably need to look at the way we're putting this together because it seems like we're missing something. If the fully burdened cost is coming up with this kind of disparity between what our model's spitting out, it seems like at the end of the day we're missing something or we're leaving something on the table that is costing the port money. Yeah, th thanks for that. I, I'd, I'd like to just respond quickly. Um, certainly we think cost plus or cost reimbursement models are an option for the port. It's something we consider on every contract that we do. Um, but there is certainly some inappropriateness about comparing uh, this cost reimbursement model with the way that we did it. One is risk management. So the risk profiles are considerably different between the two contract types. So a cost reimbursement contract um, throughout the life of a contract will pay actual costs. Um, you have no um, protection against indirect cost rates going considerably higher. Um, and they are administratively considerably burdensome. You know, um, the time to verify those costs that, um, that, we, that the contractor is submitting takes considerable time, um, and it makes us slower for project delivery. So those are certainly questions that we consider when we pick a contract type. I, I actually also have concerns with the um, potential cost savings that we've listed in this. So one good example is the general liability insurance. Cost reimbursement model contracts pay actual costs. So we've chosen to say, you know, industry standards 0.5%, they, they build us 1.2%, but we don't like that because industry standards 0.5. It could be 10%. If, if that's what it costs Turner, then that's what it costs us in a cost reimbursement model. So we chose for our analysis to, um, to reduce costs that should not have been reduced. Uh, another example of this is the benefits charge where we um, reduced a lot of things that we said are sometimes not allowable. Um, that, that needs to be negotiated and figured out. We shouldn't have just wiped those off the board. And then finally, the fee at five and five and a half percent that they included, that is certainly standard for construction. I agree with that. This is not exactly a construction contract. Pre-construction contracts are more similar to a professional services contract. They don't have material costs and markup on those and things that a construction contract will make. Um, and there are many references through ACEC or even federal legislation like 23 CFR that list cost plus fee contracts generally are 8 to 15 percent. Um, we chose to use 5 percent for the purpose of showing a cost savings that is probably inappropriate. Okay. I, I guess yeah, hearing that feedback, one thing I guess I would direct this to Glenn and team, what is our process for like when there's debate among the staff that were kind of working on this and the people working on this versus what we found it seems like we're not on the same page and we're bringing this forward at mm -hmm. uh, you know to be presented with these specific numbers but it sounds like they have some pretty significant concerns or ideas around why they did what they did so what when we put this together like where does it go like who has to what is the process here i guess i don't know so i'll, I'll provide a overview you know we do have a disagreement on it um and that's clear. I think uh, this process started 
you know, uh, probably about six months ago, and it, it's uh, we chose not to bring it to the last audit committee meeting because we hadn't ironed out some of the things. But but um, you know, our position still is that the this ties to the the rate tool. We think there's an opportunity that needs to be addressed. I think we're spending too much. You know, our rate tool needs to be recalibrated, and I've kind of uh, that came from a prior audit where we took it apart and we identified opportunities for improvement. So, you know, the old audit issue still stands. It hasn't been addressed. Now, um, you know, we disagree in some things. I, I think that's why on the rates. There's still money in the table, but I, I believe that's why we had Debbie Townsend and, and uh, Patricia speak a little bit about what they're seeing and why they think rates are different. When we talk about GLI, you know, yeah, they might have an actual GLI of 10%, but that's unrealistic. I mean, I think they know what Turner's GLI is, and that's why they work with Turner every day, and that's why they brought that up, right? So, you know, and, and uh, we can ask them as well. Spencer, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, maybe um, I'll just, uh, even at a higher level of process uh, throughout the engagement as we're formulating um, conclusions, what we're seeing at the time, um, we work with, with the departments um, in, in this particular case. Of course, it's, um, there, there's a disagreement on, on the conclusions, but in, in most cases throughout the engagement of continue, um, continuous meetings and updates, usually uh, the conclusions of, of the audits are, are agreed upon. Would, would you guys agree that under most circumstances? Glenn, just adding on to what Sarah has already said, and you've asked wonderful questions today that were really helpful, so I just want to thank you for your, your contributions. Um, it's, it's clear there's, there's a disagreement, so I wonder, in this case, what are other agencies doing around the state, and how does this compare to what those agencies are doing? Would we be able to get some data or some information that provides a comparable? Absolutely. Go ahead, if you may. Uh, yes, especially when it comes to uh, GCCM uh, projects throughout all agencies, they uh, all have to follow the same um, RCW. So there, there's a lot of uh, these type of projects out there amongst agencies and uh, uh, external independent audit, construction audit firms that are, are performing very similar work. So, so the information is definitely available. Yeah, but is so, it in alignment with what you guys are finding? Is other auditors finding similar s concerns? Well, so so when we looked at um, the A and E rate tool the first time and how we come up with the rates, um, we found you know it was actually raised to us from inside CPO. Somebody had raised a concern to us saying where the tool isn't functioning as intended. So we did our first audit. We also looked at. Um, you know what the state auditor was doing. The state auditor had done an audit, of a similar type of audits and rates, and um, it, on the Columbia Crossing Bridge. So we use leverage off that. We talked to Wasdot at the time, and and we still think there's an opportunity to improve in-house, and that's kind of why we've got it on the table. You know, there's a certain point where you do, do you let the audit issue go away, or do you kind of keep it open on the table and say there's an opportunity to improve, but. You know, if they're not going to, if if we're not going to address anything on it, then that's fine. We just we 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 did want to bring it forward and not, you know, 
part of what we do as an auditor is we're not always going to agree. Uh, like I said, nine out of ten times we do agree, or ninety-nine percent of the time we do agree, but there are times when we don't. But we'll raise it. We'll, uh, yeah, if, if management accepts the risk, we close the issue out and move forward. I, I mean, I think it's really yeah. still very concerning um, how elevated these numbers are, and I also think about you know, the, the historical information that we're, we're using, and I know that you guys have said you use a rate book and there's a lot of other information that's being considered, but ultimately that whatever is coming out as average, I feel like is on the higher end, and we're kind of getting the short end of the stick here is how I feel. Um, and so it, it makes me think that like, what could we be doing better is that when we're considering things like historical numbers and not focused on just the market rate in itself, I, I feel like we're, providing a lot of grace and now we're talking about money and is are those other um, contractors willing to, to account for historical numbers if those numbers have been lower in the past would they honor something like that and I would I would think I would doubt that and so what is the use of that is what I what I wonder and is it ultimately by cons by including that in our consideration are we ending up having to pay more and should that be removed? And so I don't think the situation is like a, we disagree and we both leave the table sort of thing, but it's a, we gotta go back to the drawing board and figure out wh where, where are the rooms to make improvements and if other agencies are doing the exact same thing, I do, I do think we should hear that back as a commission um, to say that, okay, there's all of these agencies that are, are doing this and it is best practice, it's been proven, and this is the only you know, way that we can manage something like this. I, I don't think that this is a, is a, a done thing. And I know you, you want to respond, so yeah, please yeah. go ahead. Thank you. Um, it, you know, and maybe Mandela would even like to, to chime in as well. Um, but you know, I do sit on the project review committee at the state. I know Janice sits on CPARB, which is the parent committee of that, that sees alternative public works as a delivery method and agencies come to, to get approval for that. So I do have some insight into what some other agencies are doing, at least for GCCM. Um, and actually most are not even this robust. So a lot of them do just compete them as part of the RFP process. Please tell us what your rates are on the PM and we'll use it as a very small part of the analysis for um, selecting the, the winning contractor. And then that rate, regardless if it's high or not, gets included in the contract. Um, some do a negotiated process like we're doing, but their tools are generally not as robust. Um, it generally does scale with the size of the agency and how sophisticated they are. Um, I'm not aware of any that do cost reimbursement models, but they could be out there. Um, Jez, I'm not sure if you have anything else to add, and, and you know, Mandela might like to talk a little bit more about his process and, and specifically to your comments, Commissioner. Yeah, you know, thank you, Kyle. I was actually just looking. We have 12 uh, public agencies around the state that are certified to use GCCM, and certainly we can um, do some outreach to see what they're doing. Uh, CPARB actually also has a GCCM best practices committee where we're in the middle of trying to finalize the best practices guide and we can take a look to see if within the guide this particular item's been addressed and if not, uh, make sure that we bring that up because I think it's an important discussion about uh, what is, what are the best practices around this and certainly looking around the, the state to see what others are doing would be important. Janice, and the other thing that, I th that that's really helpful and if you guys can come back to us with that information, that would be great. Um, the, this whole model, I also do wonder how does this apply when we're dealing with WIMBY businesses is the same level of sort of grace and 
and information being accounted for? Yeah, I can answer that question. Um, we use the, the different data points for all of our firms, and so that way we are trying to be consistent amongst them all and take into account the nuances of the different firms. So sometimes WIMBY firms um, um, will give us, in addition to our model, in addition to historic, if they have invoices where they can show that other agencies are paying, so say if our model is lower, our historical shows lower, if they can show that they have a um, consistent practice of getting paid at a different rate, we will look at those invoices and take that into account when we are um, negotiating the, the, the billing rates with them. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you guys for presenting. I don't think we have, do we have any additional information. I want to thank the no. staff for the report and um, to the teams that are, are, are managing this. Thank you for the information that you've, you've shared. Um, so I will move us along. Uh, to, Commissioner, do you, do you have, there's a couple more issues in this report that we have to move through. Oh, okay, great. And, and then we'll move to the next topic. So Spencer, uh, Michelle, next slide, please. Let's move one more forward. And That's right. one more. Okay, perfect. And Spencer, Spencer's gonna talk about this one. Thank you, Glenn. Um, Commissioners, Ms. Holmstrom. Uh, this second issue uh, is, is similar to what we were just discussing on, on the previous one. This is related to, um, in, during our testing, um, in some of the instances we noticed uh, there's a lack of um, documentation that supported the approved rates that had exceeded um, uh, the, the ports market maximum. Um, some of the reasons provided to us were that in certain cases, um, this is a permissible practice, um, providing that uh, a, a contractor um, provides documentation justifying um, the requested higher rate. Um, and, and additional uh, reasons provided why um, uh, documentation was, was absent was uh, the person, the rate analyst that was responsible for approving the rates at this time, this was 2020 timeframe, um, so that uh, that rate analyst was no longer at the port uh, and, and documentation could not be found. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, here's our uh, recommendations and um, uh, Kyle and Nora can uh, provide uh, their management response and uh, answer any questions. Two more so in slides. Essence, this is a documentation. Uh, in one. essence, it's a documentation issue. Lack of doc we, when we went to look for the documentation, it wasn't there. Yeah. No response from us. We appreciate the audit. <laughs> and I, I, I do think overall, CPO is very focused on process improvement, making sure we have the right documentation, and also making sure that we have a, um, that we're taking into sort of the reasonableness of the documentation and stuff. And so, um, you know, as we progress forward, we do uh, want to make sure we have the right level of documentation. Um, so, anyway. This is Mandela. Quick comment to that. Um, those files were uh, on somebody's hard drive. They left then the files disappear. Today we have them stored on a shared location and that's been in 
place for the last couple of years, but it was not in place in that uh, 2020 timeframe. I have a quick question. Um, Glenn, does that mean you go back and look at those, those documentations? No, she's, what Mandela said is he, he doesn't have it anymore. So there's nothing. He said they fixed it going forward, but going back, I see. they Got don't it. have it. Just a quick question. I want to make sure I understand this. So we did the rate negotiation. The negotiation, like the, it was overall 7% that you had mentioned, less than what they had submitted. So are we saying that in this specific issue, that rate that we agreed to, we had some that came in higher and there wasn't documentation of that. Is that what we're saying? Is that, you know, some of them, as part of the 7% process, um, we negotiated every single rate. Some of them we had a port target that we didn't hit. Some we exceeded the port target and went even lower than the port target. Um, and this is saying in some of those instances when we went above the port target, there wasn't um, the level of documentation that audit preferred. We thought, you know, when you look at the materiality of the numbers, maybe our, our documentation was okay, but that we would always look and make sure that going forward our documentation is as robust, robust as we should have it. Okay, so you're saying the negotiated rate was higher than the target we had, but we still negotiated and agreed to that rate, but we didn't keep it. Okay, that's, that's exactly what I want to right. Thanks. Okay, next questions. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks. Thank you. And then the uh, uh, third issue that we identified, um, we identified uh, opportunities um, to strengthen controls during the pay application review process. Um, in, in some of our, our review, uh, we noticed that um, instances where, uh, say, contractual requirements were not followed. Uh, for example, beginning on pay application number 12, the port stopped requiring uh, Turner Construction uh, to submit um, timesheets with their pay applications which was a requirement of the contract. Uh, of course, the risk um, associated with not requiring timesheets is that the contractor could bill for a time not worked uh, or, or a higher billable rate than what was approved. We also identified um, a, a small dollar amount of, of uh, overbillings. Uh, this was Turner Construction did make that adjustment on one of the uh, later pay applications after we brought it to their attention. Another area is the port allowed forecasted payments, uh, which was every month Turner would submit uh, an amount of anticipated work that would be performed the following month. Uh, the contract only allowed reimbursement of actual costs. We did perform a test to reconcile prepayments to make sure that they were um, credited back to the port. Uh, we were able to do that without exception. So all the prepayments were decreased the following month. And then um, for contractor personnel changes, um, uh, management was unable to provide us um, with, with support, the supporting documentation that was uh, required by contract for approval of any of those changes. 
Uh, for most of those personnel, we were able to obtain supporting documentation from Turner Construction on approved rates. Uh, next slide, please. And here's our recommendation, and Janice um, can provide the response of um, management. Yeah, so I, I appreciate our partnership with Internal Audit. So the, these were, you know, this was a contract from uh, 2020, and the, the piece around the documentation when they have a change in personnel has happened on a couple of our projects, and so we've trained our staff to make sure they're really clear about the standard operating procedures, and the same with the, the pay estimates, that although they might have thought that that was actually to the benefit of having these forecasted payments, that then are reconciled the next month with actual, that is not our standard operating procedure. So we have made sure that our staff are really clear about our procedures and that um, they don't get to choose on their own when they might want to deviate from that. Um, they might be well-intentioned, but that is not how we want to conduct business. So we, we thank them for um, identifying that and we've rectified the situation. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll stay. Okay. Next, next slide. slide. Please, Michelle. So the last, well, last construction audit that we're going to talk about is um, the main terminal low voltage project. So this one, again, another GCCM um, with Mortensen as the general contractor construction manager. This um, is about, you know, it's pre-construction again, so it's about $3 million in total that uh, we've got. And um, it's low voltage is essentially 110, 220 volt at the airport, you know, and, and I believe it's pretty old and needs to be replaced. So we're going through this massive project to upgrade the low voltage at the airport. Um, when, when all said and done, this is again going to be a large project in, in total, not, not just pre-construction, but it'll be over $100 million and uh, there'll be some windy work as well done on this. So uh, I'll let Spencer talk about the issue and the opportunities for improvement. And, and as always, like uh, Janice says in these, you know, we find opportunities and Janice jumps right on them. So it's good. that's a good partnership. Okay. Um, the uh, one of the findings here is very similar uh, pay application review process. Um, just to give some um, some more probably more more background or something for the work that we're performing is quite detailed, um, and so for for these findings, um, as even in the case that I'll be discussing shortly on this, uh, fairly fairly low amounts in consideration of these are million dollar um, pay applications every month. Um, some can be 50 pages long. So I don't want it to come across as there's no internal controls at all because these are pretty minor in the grand scheme of things just, just to put that out there. Um, the results that we saw on, on this, uh, there were $1,200 in unallowable costs, uh, $7,400 uh, in overpayments. Uh, bringing this just because um, as a, you know, although small amounts, uh, it could possibly permeate uh, 
through the rest of the project if not um, uh, corrected uh, before or corrected as soon as possible. Um, we noticed that uh, the port's approval of key personnel change uh, was not maintained. Uh, that's a contract requirement. And uh, there's uh, two budgets, contingency and other stipulated direct cost budgets. These were used for expenses related to completing uh, pre-construction area of work instead of expenses that were um, uh, allowable uh, as outlined in uh, contract or there was a related change order. Uh, total charged was uh, $85,000 to both budgets. And again, uh, that $85,000 isn't questioning it as unallowable uh, payments or work that was not performed. It was just charged to incorrect uh, budgets which could have been covered by a change order or something. Next slide, please. Um, here's our recommendations and Janice um, can provide any additional information. Yeah, so similar to the last one, you know, we agree with the recommendations. This one was actually awarded uh, 18 months before the one you heard previously. So a lot of these recommendations we've been training our staff on already. And the only thing I will add is that we just had our quarterly uh, meeting with the association, Associated General Contractors. So we have a quarterly best practices meeting with them. And we shared with them these two audits plus the one that uh, came to you in June. Because a big part of what we want to make sure is that the contractors are submitting factually and correct information so that we actually are stopping the misin misinformation from the very source of the information that comes to us. So again, just appreciate the, the partnership and, and continuous improvement. Uh, this one, uh, just like you asked before, Commissioner Cho, about the, the change order amount, uh, this one also was underestimated in terms of how much work we were gonna be doing with the contractor really trying to map out some very old infrastructure related to our, our low voltage infrastructure that we were replacing. Thank you, Janice, and thanks for uh, sharing your responses and always being proactive around, around this. Um, are there any questions from the committee members at this time? And this was item eight, so I, if there's no questions or additional comments, I can move us along to item number nine. So item number nine, 10, and 11 on the agenda are information technology audit items. These items are security sensitive and will be discussed in non-public sessions. We have one uh, limited contract compliance audit on our agenda today. This is item number 12. Um, Glenn, please proceed with the report. Thanks, Commissioner. This is a clean audit, so it's just a little background on the grain terminal that you see at uh, Terminal 86 out there. You know, um, it's an old company, Louis Dreyfus and Company, that's been moving grain and agriculture since 1909. So. Uh, you know, the 
the volume is quite impressive. And um, cotton, soybeans, wheat, corn um, are moved. It, they can store uh, up to 4 million bushels or you know, hundreds of, 100 metric tons, which is enormous. And uh, there's independent grain certification, quality certification that goes on over there. Next slide, please. Just in volume, if, if, you, know, if you look at the, the volume of metric tons that occurred this year and in the prior couple of years, this is the primary items that they move, yellow corn now, soybeans and grain. Mm -hmm. Sorghum was moved in you know, about 4 million metric tons, so um, quite a bit. N next slide, please. And as you can see, we get a lot of money from them also. So about $6 million a year in revenues that come to the port. Um, so from every five, six years or so, we'll go in and look at them and make sure that you know, they are paying us the correct amount. Um, so just a little overview there that I want to provide. Um, my next slide just says that they materially complied with the lease and we have no findings. And that concludes our audit presentation for today. So back to you. Great. We love a clean audit. <laughs> um, are there any questions from the committee members at this time? Hearing none, Mr. Fernandez, do you have any closing comments for the committee today? No, I do not. I just wanted to say thanks to Patricia and Debbie for speaking today. Also, um, their wealth of knowledge and, you know, and all those disagreement, they have, um, they have closer input and, and a relationship with uh, with Turner, since they work, they've worked with Turner for years. Mm -hmm. uh, they know GLI rates are not 10%, they're 0.5 of whatever she quoted. <laughs> and I see them on the screen. So thank you very much, and thank you to the commission for being with us today. Thank you. Are there any closing comments from the committee members at this time? Well, I just want to say thank you to your entire audit team and all, everyone who uh, presented today. And thanks for joining us, Patricia and Debbie. Um, you shared a wealth of information and appreciated your, your, your comments as well. So hearing no further comments, we are now recessing into the non-public portion of our meeting. And the time is 10.44 a.m. to discuss the three audit-related items to that are uh, security sensitive information the non-public portion of the meeting will last approximately 30 minutes and the meeting will adjourn with no further business after that time participants joining the public non-public portion of the meeting via team please close out of this meeting link and join the 11 a.m teams meeting invitation for everyone joining in the physical meeting room, please proceed to the third, third floor, conference room 3CC03. The current time is 1045.